Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. And let's pray, and we'll jump into Scripture this morning. Living God, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you for the gift, all the gifts of your grace. Thank you distinctly this morning for the gift of the church, this messy community, huddle of women and men coming with our hands open to you, hungry and in need of your grace. And you, by your grace, are here. We come in faith today. We ask that you would give us faith, that you are here. We are not just a huddle of folks with a liturgy and some stories and songs we are learning. But you, God, somehow have chosen to make yourself uniquely present to your people as we gather. And so we ask that as we open your word, Genesis 4 today, you would open up yourself to us. You would open us us up to you. We pray that not just for ourselves, but for every person around us. Would you come and meet us here? For our kids throughout this building, for our middle school youth going downstairs to study Ephesians, would you come and anoint the ministry of your word and have your way among us, God, for your glory. Give us hope in our hearts that you are here. Amen. Well, today we return to our study in Genesis 1 to 11. Thank you for your grace to me uh, in receiving Gary Bennett last minute, last week. Um, our study in Genesis 1-11 is called Original Grace. And we're really in the study for two, two reasons. One, because we really love preaching hard things. That's not the reason, but that is Genesis 1-11. to um, But Genesis 1-11 to is vital for us because it isn't just the prologue to the book of Genesis or to the story of Scripture, but it is, according to God's revelation, it is the prologue to all of our lives. It is the essential context that helps us make sense of our lives and our world. This is the claim of Scripture. It, without it, we will lack a framework, at least from a Christian perspective, we'll lack a framework for making sense of who we are, what it means to be human, who God is, why God has made us, and why this world is as it is, with all of its beauty and its brokenness, which we can't ignore in these days, right? Uh, whether we're thinking about the wars across the globe or warring ideas and priorities that polarize and fracture community and society, or the multiple, the many epidemics of depression, alienation, addiction that touch so many lives. Genesis 1 to 11 gives us a context for making sense of our lives and our world, down through history and today. But with this too, the other reason for this study, the reason we need to spend a season every Christian does in Genesis 1 to 11 is because it awakens us to the gospel in a way we don't realize it. To the God who has always been good news. And you know this as much as I do. We live in a time where there is a pervasive conviction among many in our day that even whispers into all of our lives that though Jesus might be good news, the God of the Old Testament is always angry. The God of the Old Testament is not to be trusted or worse, simply terrifying. There are many who believe that. But read and interpreted in the light of its ancient Near Eastern context with an eye towards Jesus, as we are discovering in this study, Genesis 1 to 11 tells us a radically different story. 
The story of a God who is and always has been good news for the world, for all, for Palestine as much as for Israel, for every people in every place, for every woman, for every man, for every child. And we'll discover it again, I hope, today in Genesis 4, the famous story of Cain and Abel. If you have a Bible, open it with me to Genesis 4. It's right after chapter 3. Boom. I realized uh, the other day, I often say, if you don't have a Bible, there's a stack at the back. But I think all the ones in the comments are actually New Testament. So sorry about that. But we could help you out if that's not, maybe not in this moment. Genesis 4. Uh, we're going to be looking primarily at verses 1 to 16 today. And I'm just going to read the whole text for us right at the outset to help us get the arc of the story in our minds. Some of us might not know the story. Some of us, this will remind us of it. And then we're going to simply walk through it. Genesis 4, 1 to 16. I'm reading from the NIV. And part in the opening line is PG. Adam made love to his wife. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain... And his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. But when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as is often the case, there is so much in these 16 verses. I'm sure there are many parts that caught your attention or maybe sparked questions. Some of which I will explore, some of which I won't get to. I'll do my best to simply take us into the heart of this story and some of its implications for us. 
Now, if you've been around the Bible for a while or with us this fall, you'll know that this is really the first chapter in the Bible on the other side of the fall. Because of their ancient rebellion, Adam and Eve have been cast out of the garden with a promise, a gospel promise, a word of hope from God of a day when God would cause the seed or offspring of Eve to crush the serpent and bring an end to the curse on all creation. And so Genesis 4 picks up on the story of Adam and Eve fulfilling God's command to be fruitful and multiply, and Eve conceives and gives birth to Cain. And shortly after, she conceives again and gives birth to Abel. Some of your Bibles might have a footnote related to these names, at least to Cain's name. But the author of Genesis, or Eve, and Eve herself, highlight this to us in this simple statement at the end of verse 1, following the birth of Cain, she says, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And most footnotes uh, on this mention about how the Hebrew name Cain sounds like the Hebrew word for brought forth or gotten, which connects with, makes sense of Eve's announcement. I have brought forth, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man, Cain. The word can also be translated acquire, get, or possess. And however it's translated, there's a sense of achievement in giving this name to Cain. A sense of achievement. I've done this, Eve is saying. And by giving this as Cain's name, Eve is speaking this over Cain in some way, that he might embody this, that he might be a doer, a getter, an achiever, a possessor, an acquirer. What about Abel's name? Most Bibles don't include a footnote about its meaning, but I wish they did, because this name is shockingly significant, and it's actually a name that most of us know. The Hebrew word is pronounced hevel, and it's a word we all know because it shows up in Ecclesiastes 38 times. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Hevel, hevel, everything is hevel. Abel, hevel. Modern Jewish translation has it Utterly futile, utter futility, utter futility, all is futile. I think this translation gets best at the meaning of this word. Hevel literally means vapor, breath, air, which isn't necessarily meaningless, but it's fleeting, right? Air matters, yeah? Breath matters, breathing matters, but one hevel, it's not enough. It's gone for a moment, and then it's gone. Some even comment how the word itself, hevel, it's just gone. It doesn't stick in your mouth. It's gone. What a name to give your son. I don't want to put too much stock in this. The text doesn't linger here. But in the Bible, as much as, as, much as in the ancient world, Names carried meaning and often are aimed at shaping a destiny. And I have no idea why Adam and Eve would name their children this way. Now, Hevel kept flocks and the getter worked the soil, we're told. I appreciate how this verse uh, shows us how the creation mandate in Genesis 1 and 2 
right? God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and care for it. The creation mandate given to Adam and Eve now is being picked up by their children, each in a different way. One works the land, the other cares for livestock. Verse three, in the course of time, Cain, the getter, brought some of the fruit of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel, Hevel, also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So much has been written on this. You could go hunting down through the commentaries. They all pick up different things in the story of Cain and Abel, but they all explore this. Why? Why has God not accepted Cain's offering? And before I speak to this, it is worth noting the text doesn't at all linger on this. The case could be made that Genesis 4 is far more focused on the exchange that follows after this moment. The exchange between first God and Cain, then between Cain and Abel, and then again between God and Cain. And I think that's where we really need to put our focus. But still the question remains about Cain's offering and God's disapproval. There are some spurious or ridiculous answers provided. Some have said God prefers shepherds over gardeners. I don't think that's a very valid, uh, thoroughly theological statement. Others say God is simply unfair. I read a commentary that said that this week. I took notes and radically disagreed. (laughs) But but let it be said, sometimes it feels that way. But in regard to Genesis 4, everything else in this chapter, as we will hopefully see, loudly affirms God's justice and God's mercy, which steers us away from any suggestion that God is simply being unfair here. Some suggest that the difference is that one offering involves blood, a sacrifice, whereas the other is simply the fruit of the land, which initially seems convincing until you realize that this act of worship is explicitly referred to as an offering or a tribute in Hebrew, a minha, which as Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament scholar and many other scholars agree, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the minha is a bloodless sacrifice. It's a grain offering, it's a thank offering, the first fruits of one's labor, whatever that labor is. So God's judgment on Cain isn't about the offering not including blood. The only clue that the text gives us is that whereas Abel brought fat of the firstborn, i.e. the best cut of the firstborn, Cain simply brought some of the fruit of the soil. The distinction being that Abel brought what what was costly to him which Hebrews 11 describes as an act of faith, whereas Cain simply brought whatever was on hand. Oh, it's time for the minha. Let's grab some of this. Which could lead us to say, ultimately God's issue is not actually with the offering itself, fruit or fat, but with the heart and soul of the one bringing the offering. Which might be why verse four explicitly says, the Lord looked favorably, not simply on Abel's offering, but on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. And Cain's response 
is significant. It's the only time in this text where something is said twice. Everything else is said, said, said. Here it happens, and then God says the exact same thing. We're supposed to get our attention. Verse five, so Cain was very angry. His face was downcast. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Which right there implicitly tells us that Cain knew God's expectation. Bringing the minha to the Lord was not a moment of religious improv for Cain and Abel. They were not testing out a new idea. No, away from our hearing, Cain and Abel had learned, whether from their parents or from the Lord himself, what right worship entailed. So in rejecting Cain's offering, God was not judging Cain unfairly according to a standard that he had yet to make known. God was just toward Cain in his judgment, but Cain was angry. Why, God asked him. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. I need to linger on this, these verses for a few minutes because there's so much here. First of all, notice how, again, here in Genesis, as in the garden in the previous chapter, God comes near not first with pronouncement, but with questions. Questions that invite engagement. Questions that invite honesty. Questions that invite relationship, self-understanding, and hopefully restoration. Questions intended to lead Cain through the fog of his blinding anger. Note that God does not say to Cain, stop being angry. He says, why are you angry? He invites him into a conversation. Only later, after Cain has killed his brother, does God say, what have you done? At the outset, God comes near in grace to search Cain's heart, to help Cain understand his own heart. Why? Because Yahweh knows where unholy anger can lead us. Which I think is a word to some of us. In truth, we probably all have anger at times that we try to ignore or just manage, that we would do well to process honestly with God, who alone truly knows our hearts. Maybe to process honestly with God and with another for the sake of where it could lead us. God's questions are an invitation of grace to grace. More on that in a moment. Second, along with these questions, God gives Cain and us an incredibly helpful portrayal of sin here, one that I think we need. Because so often, we think of sin as making a mistake, right? Falling short of an ideal, which it is, but as God reveals in this verse, that is not all that sin is. God says, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. As Walter Brueggemann wisely unpacks, according to God himself in Genesis 4-7, sin is watching, waiting like a hungry lion ready to leap. Sin is not simply a breaking of rules. Rather, sin is an aggressive force ready to ambush Cain. Sin is larger than Cain and takes on a life of its own. 
There's a danger to the life of Cain and how he handles his rage and depression. Can we just be honest here? God's warning to Cain here, God's description of sin, describes something many of us know very personally, right? We've felt this. There is an honesty to how God is describing sin's presence in our lives that I find so helpful. It gives us language for what we have experienced or will. The sin is, an, is not simply a bad option. Sometimes sin has a pulse, a pulse that we feel beating in us, a power that aims to devour us or others or both, which God gets. God says, again, to quote Brueggemann, sin has a desire for Cain. Sin lusts after Cain with an animal hunger. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. And it's, this word desire here is significant because if you jump back one chapter to God's explanation of the curse, the consequence of sin and how it has fractured so much, Eve is described of having a fallen desire for her husband that will lead to her being devoured. This word desire is significant. Okay, one last time, hear God's word to Cain. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Do you hear the hope in that, that there's, there's a possibility for something different here. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but it doesn't have to devour you. It doesn't have to be that way. I, I love how, amen, receive the moment. I think it was the wrong tune for the moment. No, that's Okay. I love how these final words announce to us that in this moment, the story isn't over for Cain. In this moment, the story is not over for Cain. God's word to Cain, God's searching questions, God's gracious warning are an invitation of grace to Cain, a revelation of God's desire for Cain, sin has a desire, but God has a desire for Cain to not be devoured by sin, to not follow the destructive path of his unholy anger. But with that, it's a word of hope to Cain that as Trevor Hudson, a wise South African Methodist pastor, whom I love his books, he says, the worst thing that has happened does not have to be the last thing. The story doesn't have to end this way for Cain. Cain can be reconciled to God and restored by God. If only Cain would bow to God in this moment. If only Cain would say, yes, I'm angry, here's why. If only Cain would say, yes, I confess. Say yes to God's invitation to repentance and restoration and reconciliation, but he doesn't, right? Instead, he walks away from God and goes out to his brother, said, hey, let's go for a walk in anger. Verse, Genesis 4, verse 8, has to be one of the saddest verses in the Bible thus far. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. 
While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Bruce Walkie refers to this as the first religious war. He writes, in hatred, Cain begins the first religious war. Because he renounces God, he renounces God's image bearer. Which actually gives us insight into the reason for Cain's anger. Because Cain sees God as a means to his own end. As we said at the start, the word, the name Cain literally means gotten, acquire, get, possess. And Cain seems to taken, have taken this in as his own story. He seems to have claimed this as his truth, as we'd say these days. He's embraced a view of himself as the center of life, the center of the universe. He is the one who gets. Which makes God, the Lord, an accessory to Cain. Cain's accessory, a provider of what he wants when he wants it, a means to Cain's end. I'll give you this, didn't really want it anyways, and you will give me this. You will, because I gave you that. That's how it works. But in the wake of this cheap minha, his attempted bribe offering cloaked as worship. Cain has come face to face with the reality that Yahweh, the maker of the heavens and the earth, is not willing to be his accessory. A slot machine in the sky that will dispense blessings at Cain's command, which makes Cain angry because that's how the universe is supposed to work as far as he can see. Note in this moment, who's angry? As I said at the beginning, many people read the Old Testament or think of the Old Testament and think of an angry God. In this moment, Yahweh is not angry. Cain is angry. Not that God is indifferent. Far from it. Far from it. But unlike Cain, Yahweh, in the breach of relationship, Yahweh comes near to seek restoration, to restore Cain's understanding of himself and of God that would lead Cain to life for Cain and for others. But in rejecting God's grace, Cain rejects not only God, but also his brother, God's image bearer. And in that moment, rather than seeing his brother as a fellow image bearer to be honored and cared for, Cain sees his brother as nothing but hevel, utterly futile, insubstantial, Hevel, not worth holding on to, something that has outlived its purpose, a breath that is no longer useful. And so rather than repent, Cain kills Abel. And again, God comes near to Cain. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Again, notice that Cain doesn't come, God doesn't come first with pronouncements, but with questions, inviting Cain again to confess, to come clean, to repent. The worst thing that has happened doesn't have to be the last thing. He comes asking questions, inviting Cain to own his sin, to ask for forgiveness and for help from the one who is stronger than sin. And not only that, but in his searching question, notice that God, Yahweh, is speaking up for Abel. Sue, you said it in your prayer. You named these places where we don't even know there's war going on, most of us, because we're just caught up with a news cycle that now is completely on Israel and Gaza. 
But they're not forgotten. They're not forgotten by the God who names Abel after he's been taken out of the story, but not out of God's heart. Cain may have set Abel aside, but Abel is not hevel to the God of Genesis. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he says. Am I my brother's keeper? Some argue that Cain's response is better translated, not simply I don't know, but what is it to me? What is he to me? Am I my brother's keeper? Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Three times in three verses, God refers to Abel explicitly as your brother, your brother, your brother. Where's your brother, Abel? I don't, I don't, I don't know. What is he to me? Am I my brother's keeper? The answer? Yes. Yes. Yes, you are, Cain. But you haven't been. But I will be, God is saying. I am, God is saying. I will continue to speak Abel's name. I will continue to hear and do hear the cry for justice that rises from his blood poured out on the ground. I will seek justice, Yahweh says. Honestly, in the light of all this, it astounds me that anyone would suggest that God's rejection of Cain's minha is because God is unfair. If nothing else, if nothing else, the biblical story of Cain and Abel is the first proof in the chronology of Scripture that God is just, that God is good, where others twist and distort the way the world works. This is a God who seeks justice. This is a God who cares for humanity and acts accordingly, who treats, who cares about how we treat one another, who cares about our worship. Why? Because he alone is worthy. Yes, of course, but also because God knows that when we worship anything less than himself, we will become less than we were created to be. We will become less human and we will treat others accordingly. When we exploit God as an object, we will exploit others as an object to our ends. Not as our brother or our sister, given to us from the hand of God, but as merely an object to exploit, just another hevel, not worth holding on to, much less honoring and keeping. As I was living with this story in the last week and a bit, my mind ran to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, stunned a bit, and how Jesus, in part of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, picks up on almost every theme in this story. I wonder if your mind has gone there. Matthew 5, 21 and following. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Verse 23 and following. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. 
then come and offer your gift. I've never seen this before this week, but it all the more highlights the goodness of God, that the original grace of God in Genesis and in the whole of Scripture, here is a God who cares as much about our brother and our sister and how we treat one another as he does about our worship. As we come with our offering, knowing we are at odds with someone, there's anger in our hearts toward another or them toward us, God doesn't say, forget about them, I'm the one that matters, come to me. He says, put it down. Go, go be reconciled. Here's a God who cares as much about our brother and our sister and how we treat one another as he does about our worship. And I can't help but think of one other text of scripture, Isaiah chapter one, verse 13 and following. God says to his own people, stop bringing your meaningless minha, your meaningless offerings. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And then come, come now, let us reason together. Says the Lord, though your skins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Things can change. You can go in a new direction and follow God's ways. This is the God we meet in Genesis 4. This is the God we meet in Jesus, a God who cares as much about our brother and sister and how we treat one another as he does about our worship. And if that wasn't enough, if that wasn't good news enough, there is even an even greater revelation of grace in this. Think back with me to Cain's anger and how it seems to have been rooted in a misplaced worship of himself, treating God as an accessory, a means to Cain's end. It would make sense in the light of this for us to assume that God's aim in rescuing Cain is to flip all this on its head. That Cain would see and worship God as God and himself as God's accessory. And yet in Genesis 4, and then echoed in so many places of Scripture, God reveals himself, not simply as our Lord and our maker, but as our keeper. That's what Psalm 121 says, the Lord will be your keeper. In truth, this is what the rest of Cain's story is all about. God's justice for Abel and Cain's ironic cry for mercy. He who did not keep his brother, who'd done, who'd done nothing against him, now is afraid that he will have no keeper. Oh God, you're being too so hard on me. You're sending me away. Where will justice come for me? Uh, there's an irony, a painful irony to his lack of care, care, simple care for his brother, and then his cry for justice from God. And yet in another sign of original grace, God himself promises to be Cain's keeper. We're told he puts a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. As Ian Proven, an Old Testament scholar, says, even in exile, Cain, God, God looks after Cain. He keeps him even though Cain would not keep his brother. He goes on. A murderer who deserved to die is instead exiled. And in his exile, he remains an object of God's continued blessing. He's treated still as part of God's family. In the land of Nod, which means wandering, Cain is watched over by God as Cain should have watched over Abel, but did not. Which to some of us might seem unfair, Right? That after all that Cain did to Abel, the God of Genesis, 
would promise to be Cain's keeper. And I can understand that. I can feel that. And yet, is, is it also not true that sometimes, maybe often, what we need more than fairness is mercy? Justice and mercy. Cain, exiled to the wilderness, but kept by God, his true keeper. This is the God we meet in Genesis 4. A God of justice who also offers mercy. Just and, and mercy that we, like Cain, need. Justice and mercy that our brothers and our sisters need from God in us. Made in his image to bear his image. So where's your brother? Where's your sister? Who has God called you as his image bearer to keep, to honor, to watch over, to give justice and mercy to? Who needs to know God's justice and mercy in you? Let's pray. give you a moment to speak your own response to God's word and then I'll lead us in prayer. Living God, I thank you for your word, your revelation to us. Thank you that you have, by the grace of your spirit, spoken your revelation into history, guarded it down through the years, and all across the globe today, women and men are gathered in small huddles, in big rooms, at home, opening your word and hearing your voice speak justice and mercy and grace about who you are and who you've made us to be, and what it means to be human, what it means to be made in your image, and the calling to live that out, to reflect you and how we walk with one another. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness where, as you search our hearts, we can think of people that we have regarded as simply hevel who do not serve a purpose for our benefit or maybe whose benefit has passed. We thank you, God, that you stand up for the voiceless and that at the right time you do rage with holy anger for the ways in which we, your image bearers, kill our brothers and our sisters or simply ignore, cast off, ghost. Oh God, would you open our eyes to see our sister 
our brother as exactly that. Thank you that you see us that way. Amen.